Hello and Happy New Year. Well, it's New Year's Eve as I record this, but you're probably listening in 2023. So let's make this shift positive by talking about hope. We could use some of that. And like the crossing over from one year to the next, hope itself is a horizon, an umbrella over the twilight zone between day and night. That's one of the things that makes hope unique, that it involves past, present, and future. In Dr. Jane Goodall's recent publication, The Book of Hope, she acknowledges we're living in dark times. But she gives four good reasons to be hopeful about the world, about the environment, about the future. Those are, one, the amazing human intellect, two, the resilience of nature, three, the power of young people. Every generation comes into this world with a totally different set of priorities, perspectives, values. And fourth, the indomitable human spirit. So hope, unlike so many other virtues, requires negative circumstances. And without it, what's possible may never be discovered. But with it, the possible gets churned into the probable. Why even act if there's no hope? And it becomes a virtuous feedback loop. The more you hope, the more motivated you will be to act. And the more you act, personally and collectively, on this quest for the true, the good, and the beautiful, the more hopeful you'll be. So I wish you a year where that which you hope for, for yourself, for your family, and for this world, is realized. I'm also reminded of the Emily Dickinson poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. The first stanza contains the title, Hope is the Thing with Feathers that Perches in the Soul and Sings the Tune Without the Words and Never Stops at All. It's magical how she takes something metaphysical and transforms it into something sensuous. Feathers are obviously something we can see and feel. And that's how hope works. But personally, hope as it relates to singing the tune without the words and not stopping at all, takes me back to so many times on stage in performance when it was my turn to sing lead on a song. And I would suddenly panic when I doubt that I will be able to remember the next verse, or even the first line as we start a song. And sometimes I would be looking at my brother in desperation, and he knows what I'm going through and just kind of nods that it's going to be all right. What typically happens is when you get to that moment where you have to sing, the words come. And I think there's something analogous about that with life and our worries We don't know how things are going to work out. But our responsibility is to show up, to put our best foot forward. Trust that if we prepare and pay attention sincerely, 
we can make the most out of circumstances and derive meaning. There are a few moments in this recording where it's a little bit hard to hear. I did my best to enhance the overall audio. But there is one quote that I want to repeat here because I think it summarizes the whole topic. It's from the psychologist Charles Snyder, who dedicated most of his professional life to researching the psychology of hope. The quote is, A rainbow is a prism that sends shards of multicolored light in various directions. It lifts our spirits and makes us think of what is possible. Hope is the same, a personal rainbow of the mind. I hope you enjoy this episode. Grateful for the opportunity to share and to be of service and looking forward to connecting in 2023. You know, in the wake of the maelstrom of public health issues and economic issues and always the looming prospect of further wars and just so much uncertainty. It's been another opportunity for cynicism, pessimism, negativity to propagate. And we're already wired to just be more attracted to negativity anyway. It was, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, more useful for survival to worry, to be able to see what could go wrong or think about what could go wrong would serve you better than stopping and smelling the roses. So recognizing this, I looked inward and I noticed that I pretty much discounted hope a lot throughout my life. I've kind of equated it with a passive relinquishing of effort. And, and I preferred something adjacent to hope, which is optimism, as like a, I guess a more practical or scientific approach to my life. But as a clinician, I think about when patients are hopeless. And if you reflect on a time when you might have felt hopeless or in despair, we know that's a dark and despondent space. And if hope really didn't have much value, as I was kind of interpreting in my mind, then hopelessness ought to be neutral. Right? And we know that it's not. So now the question becomes, okay, well, how much hope? Or what is useful about hope? Or is hope a way to to survive those moments or to get out of those moments? And then is there a time when, when we need to trade it for something else? So I, I started looking at it further and I realized I say the word hope all the time. And it, it got me kind of refining my attitude about it because I'm constantly, I said to many of you, I hope you can come tonight. <laughs> I hope you can be here and I hope you're doing well now that you are here. So there it is. It's a verb. And it's a noun, hoping for something and hope as something, some kind of quality or virtue. I started looking at uh, research of hope theory and the phenomenon of hope, the work of a psychologist named Charles Snyder. But what was salient for me in his research was that he studied it or emphasized its relevance in the context of doing 
versus being. And if you've been to other kind mind gatherings before, you know that I tend to emphasize being versus doing. Because meditation isn't, in, in my understanding, isn't so much of a practice. Meditation isn't so much something that we do or have to find extra time for. It's actually not doing. So it'd be more accurate to say meditation isn't what we do, but what we are. When we're not doing and we're being, we're closer to something true, I think, about our nature. When we're hustling and running around doing stuff, we forget or we lose touch with our, our true nature. However, we have to keep doing stuff, not just in an existential sense that your heart's always beating or your breath's always going, but I mean that the, the way society is organized and structured, you can't do nothing for very long before there are problems. And, and I, I recognize that. And it's, it's both sad and, and also meaningful in other ways because the doing and the hoping creates some forward momentum, also gives some vitality to life. But otherwise, you're looking at really two kind of extremes to get to the kind of freedom where you could just be. And we could celebrate being more often. You'd either have to be a monk, a renunciant monk, that says, I'm not, you know, I'm not playing the game anymore. And I've thought about that and I've spent time in monasteries and I've lived in monasteries. Um, and maybe one day I will, I'll do that. But what I've, but what I learned about, you know, from spending lots of time with monastics is, and what I think is true about me is that I would still want to keep going, want to keep doing. And so it's really not suitable, at least not right now for somebody like me that has a lot of desires, has a lot of things I want to do in the world, a lot of ways I want to be entangled with society. However, that's, that is a path. It's a hard path and many people are in the path but struggling because they're really suppressing feelings, urges, and propensities to do. But for some people, it's not hard at all because what's, what's hard is to stay in the, the structure, the conventional structure. Now on the flip side, you have financial freedom. If you were truly free enough financially or you had generational wealth, if you're blessed with that fortune, well then if you stop working, you know, your life's not gonna crumble. But most of us, like me, are somewhere in the middle. Therefore, it really matters that we have some framing for how we're gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? So that's what brings me back to hope because it's probably unrealistic that we'll find ourselves in one of those two paradigms. And even the people that achieve through achieving, through doing, by gaming the system, or benefiting from previous gamers of the system. And they have that uh, escape velocity with, with their money. Can people give up the habits that got them to that place? I mean, you look at people with exorbitant wealth, they're still doing a lot of shit, <laughs> you know? They don't see, very once in a while, or very rarely, you hear a story of like, like a partner in Microsoft sold his share and he's just done. But that's such a rare thing. People just, because the habits that are developed in the earning, in the achieving, in the success in our system, those habits don't die easily. So anyways, that's why 
it's important to think about these things and to to recognize what what freedom really means and and we're probably not going to easily be able to go into one of those patterns but with a balance of doing and some being every day i think we can be happy people and that's that's a realistic hope and so i want to emphasize also that goals and aspirations that we're going to explore tonight with the hope as it pertains to doing is not synonymous with ambition and craving but the former do give momentum and vitality to our experience so this researcher charles snyder had a really elegant quote about what he learned from his studies of hope this quote is a rainbow is a prism that sends shards of multicolored light in various directions it lifts our spirits and makes us think of what is possible hope is the same a personal rainbow of the mind a rainbow is actually a, a, an optical illusion that's why this is a really good analogy because a rainbow is not some fixed object in physical reality yes there are underpinnings of mechanics that include water and refraction and reflections of light but the experience of a rainbow has a lot to do with a brain and visual processing and where you are in relation to those physical mechanics and those laws what i see as a rainbow is not what the next person would perceive and certainly other life forms if they could look at a rainbow they would see something else a pig or um a butterfly that can see ultraviolet light would see a rainbow with many more bands beyond the purple and if a shrimp could see a rainbow it would be like three times wider because of their 17 photoreceptors but all of that speaks to the magic of a rainbow that there are pathways the other thing that's special about a rainbow is that it has these two ends that mythologically you can never reach but they both uh, have some treasure like a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow but when you try to get there you never can access it so the ends to me represent the past and the future and hope is unique because it straddles over the present you know you think of other virtues gratitude i'm grateful to be with you joy i'm joyful to be with you and so on honesty i'm being honest right now talking about this but hope straddles all three periods of time and the ends of the rainbow like the past and the future they're illusory there's no you can't touch the past where is the past all we know is that we think we're here because of the past although we can't go back to it and the future is just an imagination yet we can bridge those spaces in our mind with hope and when you get really up close to one of these colors in the light spectrum like red well you might miss the other pathways and that's what's beautiful about the prism that it takes something that seems singular like a goal like a dream i want to do this thing or i want this career or i want this experience or this kind of success and then when it doesn't happen quite that way you have to zoom out a little bit that's how i conceive of hope that it is a type of lens 
when used cognitively, allows you to zoom to the appropriate bandwidth. And you can always zoom out further. There's always a bigger picture. And when you see a, a larger picture, more pathways emerge. So one definition of hope is a motivational cognitive trait that helps us to see more possibilities. And one way that I get into this, or I try to nurture this kind of imagination is I think about an astronomical problem. That gets my, my lens zoomed way out. And then I start to see more possibilities up close in the here and now. So let me give you an example. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. And no matter what we do to mitigate climate change and other existential risks on this planet, the life of the sun is halfway done. So it's going to expand and its surface will reach past the orbit of Jupiter. So the Earth is destined to be incinerated in the sun. I think about this. I've talked about this on other podcasts. I don't mean to depress anybody, but it's a problem for the far future. And so is, you know, the, the other risk of polluting the planet. And maybe our ability to live here will be much shorter than that. But either way, we got to get off the planet one day. If, if we want Earth life to continue elsewhere in the universe, you may have seen now some images coming and um, in the news about the, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. This is really cool stuff, I think, to me, just seeing, seeing some of these worlds out there. And it leads to all kinds of ideas about science fiction. But 20 years ago, scientists and astronomers discovered a star system called TRAPPIST-1. And it's named TRAPPIST because of the Planetary Observatory that discovered it. A few years ago, astronomers were able to observe seven exoplanets, planets beyond Earth that are potentially habitable for us. So now this has become the target of research for the James Webb Space Telescope. There's one planet in particular in this star system that is Earth-like. Well, all of these planets are Earth-like, but there's one that's really in the Goldilocks zone. But let me tell you a little bit about what life would be like if we could ever migrate to this star system and to this planet, TRAPPIST-1e, the fourth planet. All seven of these planets are very close together and they're very close to the star because the star, TRAPPIST-1, is a red dwarf, which means it's so much smaller than our star. It's a tenth of the mass of the sun, which makes it like a little larger than Jupiter. Mind you, I don't claim to have any expertise in astronomy. I just like this stuff. So what that means is because the star is so small that the planets are close. All these planets orbit within like the, uh, the distance of Mercury to the sun. Because they're so close, they're all probably tidally locked which means because of the gravity and their orbits being so close, the rotation of these planets is not, does not produce a net change as it revolves around the star. Meaning, sort of like our moon, is, we're always seeing the same side of the moon. We never see the dark side of the moon because it's turning on its axis at a rate uh, equivalent with its orbit. 
So it's turning as it's revolving, and we keep seeing the same side. The same would probably be true for the planets on TRAPPIST-1. But that means for this one, for this one exoplanet that we could live on, one side always facing the star would be scorched, and the other side would be frozen. So we would have to live in this twilight zone where it's always sunset or sunrise. So it would always be light, but it would always be dim light, and it would always be red light. And in the, the sky, you would see the six other planets like large moons. So now we get a picture of how different life could be, but we could live there in theory. It's a terrestrial planet, which means it's probably rocky. They think it probably has an atmosphere. It probably has oceans. But we would have to evolve from our circadian rhythms because you'd have to learn, future generations would have to learn how to live with light all the time and red light. One year on TRAPPIST-1E would be six days, six Earth days. Now, where is this system and how could we get there? That's the problem that we think about. Well, it's uh, 39 light years, which makes it relatively close in astronomical terms. But even traveling at the fastest we've ever sent a human, a man-made craft, which is speeds of like up to 100,000 miles per hour, it would still take hundreds of thousands of years. So that's totally unrealistic. But if one day far into the future, people could travel near the speed of light, then it would take 30-some years. But how would we survive? Well, we'd have to find a way to take the supplies of like uh, a Walmart super center <laughs> for six astronauts. So there's lots of complications to this. But in a previous podcast, I talked about the possibilities of human hibernation. We have some of the same organs and biological structures as bears and other mammals that slow down and almost enter into suspended animation or extended torpor without atrophy. So maybe there will be things like that that will be possible. But anyway, the, the future of humanity is elsewhere in the universe. And when we think about those problems, it really puts our problems into perspective. But whatever way you can zoom out and think about the mystery of the universe can help us, I think, see more of these pathways. The hope that pertains to our life and our emotional life has three components. Agency, which means we can make a difference in our life and in the, the life around us. Pathways, which I've mentioned, that there are possibilities, there are alternative routes and the third part is our goals that we have a desire to do something else to be somewhere else we have dreams and aspirations but hope also is unique because it requires negative circumstances where so many other virtues do not you don't have to be in negative circumstances to be honest to have gratitude to have joy to have love to have compassion, but you do for hope. And out of these negative circumstances, we can 
achieve something, we can survive something, we can overcome despair. There was a, a psychologist named Martin Seligman, who's also known as the father of positive psychology. He started studying hope in the 1960s, I believe. And he also posited this theory of learned helplessness. He was studying dogs in 1967, and he created these paradigms, which are really sad to think about. But the researchers would create these experiments where different groups of dogs would either learn that there was something they could do to prevent them from getting an electric shock. And a third experimental group, he created an environment where their shocks were so random that they learned that anything they tried to do, even if they pressed this lever that was in the experiment, it wouldn't make a difference. And then he took the three groups and he put them into new experiments where again, they could be shocked, but there was an easy way out. And only the third group, the experimental group, would not get out of the experiment, would not escape the adversity. And this he called learned helplessness. And the tragic part of that was they lost hope. So for humans, this learned helplessness actually translates to learned hopelessness. This is why hope matters, because we could find ourselves in circumstances, personally or collectively, where there's actually a path forward. But because we've been beat down so many times, or disappointed so many times, we actually believe that there's nothing we can do to make a difference. I want to emphasize that adversity, when it's traumatic, can rob people of hope. That's also what leads to those experiences of hopelessness. People were in an experience where they felt like nothing they did mattered, or they had no control over their abuse, or the negative circumstances, or the dysfunction in their family. So naturally, young people could grow and develop a brain around those experiences and it can really translate to not being able to accomplish what is possible in life. This reminds me once of a, of a person I met many years ago in the hospital when I was working in an inpatient facility in addictions and he was only 36 years old at the time but he had been drinking every day for 25 years. So after he medically withdrew from alcohol he pretty much kept to himself and did not want to participate in treatment or recovery. And when I talked to him, he said, it's because there was no hope for him to change. And it was due to his 25 years of negative experience with addiction. But I asked him if it were true that he could never change or that there was no hope, or was it just a perception or the feeling? And after he thought about it for a day, he said, yeah, it's, it's not a fact of my life, but it certainly feels that way, and I have a lot of evidence to support it. But because he was able to separate fact from perception, he had a little bit, a glimmer of hope. And that glimmer of hope inspired him to go sit down in a group and see what the heck there could be to learn about recovery. And that led to more hope, and that led to more change, and that led to more pathways, and ultimately this person left treatment and I saw him once again six months later and he was still sober and it was just 
a memory that I have of like a real life example of how hope truly matters. And so when I think about discounting it or saying, it, you know, it's just magical thinking, it's not. It changes the way we engage with the world around us. The benefits of hope, as studied by Snyder and others, are that it correlates strongly with both our performance and our well-being. So people who have high hope tend to do well academically. They tend to do well athletically. People who have high hope enjoy better fitness and better health outcomes, like self-esteem, better relationships. The anatomy of hope in psychology is an agency, like I said, the motivated cognitive state, your perceived capacity that what you choose makes a difference. The goals that you set, which are both positive and negative. We have positive goals for things that we want to bring into our life, but we also have negative goals, things that we don't want to have to keep dealing with. And nobody knows what positive thing tomorrow will bring, and nobody knows what negative thing it'll take away. Or either side, nobody knows what tomorrow brings and nobody knows what tomorrow takes away. Just today, I got good news, and just today, I got bad news. Life is so mysterious like that. It's a reason to be hopeful. Because your whole world can change with a text tomorrow, with an email that comes tomorrow. And to be so sure of ourselves about anything, positive or negative, just doesn't make sense with how, how we've already seen life go in the last couple of years. But there are pathways that link the present to our imagined future, and some are plausible. Plausible does not mean likely. Some are plausible, some are probable. But it's good to know both. It's good to be conscious of what is plausible. Is, is this something that could be true, that I could make true? You know, there's a poet, Rabindranath Tagore, that said, if I can't go through one door, I'll go through another door, or I'll make a door. When I think about inequality and oppression, I don't think of it as a bottleneck problem, as a scarcity problem. I think of it as all these locked doors that people locked long ago. And if we can just unlock them, if we can just remove barriers, there's enough seats at the table. But because we always were conditioned to believe you have to go through this door only, everybody fights and mistrusts and operates you know, with, uh, with greed and scarcity mindsets. But there are some emotions that impede this process as well. And experiments show that when you prime people with a negative emotion, their hope diminishes. If you talk about a time where things didn't work out, it can make a person go, yeah, probably, it probably isn't worth doing, trying this or attempting this. This is why it's really important to be mindful of who's in your ear. Because when you have an idea or when you have a rainbow in your mind and you see, hey, this could be a good thing, and you tell someone and they shoot it down, it can really affect you. It can really uh, take the wind out of your sails. So sometimes it's not worth telling people about your hope or not telling everybody about your hope. For some, it's better to just show the show the rainbow when it's when it's done and show the results and and other people they will you know lift up 
put more air in the hot air balloon and help you go further. Similarly, or conversely, when you prime people with a positive emotion, hey, but you know, when you were stuck in this place and then you tried that, it worked. That also can inspire more hope in people. But we're so sensitive to our negative and our, our positive memories. It's good to know that and to be conscious of what kind of memories do the people in our life stir up. There are four kinds of hope that psychologists have theorized. And I, I mentioned before that hope is both a noun and a verb. But in noun form, there is different kinds of hope that, that I want to distinguish because some might be more or less meaningful for you. But the first one is realistic hope. This is a desire for an outcome in life that's reasonable and, and or probable. So an example could be you get an injury or you get some pain. It may not be realistic that your injury will be completely healed or cured and you will go back to the best mechanical version of yourself before the back injury. I've been through things like this. And that can make somebody lose all hope and despair and really see only negative things in the future. Because it's easy to focus on what you can't do when you're in pain. But at the same time, there could be realistic hope that your pain can be much less, that your quality of life can significantly improve. And it's important to know what is realistic because setting yourself up for something that's unrealistic by being hopeful, that may not help people, that may harm people. And knowing when we're doing this, when we're trying to instill hope in other people and to help people to see what is realistic, what is, what is possible. So for this, try to understand the facts and logic of a situation, but remain open. One thing that Deepak Chopra said that resonated with me in the movie Heal, that it's good to trust a diagnosis, but not the prognosis. And I like that because when you get a diagnosis like a cancer or an injury uh, or disease or a disorder, it means there is truly something in balance, something is of concern. So to tell yourself, no, no, it's nothing, probably isn't going to turn out well for a person. At the same time, when they give you the prognosis, well, here's what normally happens. In six months, it gets worse, and there's no cure for this thing. And two years from now, it's going to be very de debilitating. And your only hope is, you know, this aggressive treatment or surgery and, and things like that, right, can really make a person feel totally helpless and hopeless. But he's saying that that may be, you know, the average trajectory, but that doesn't mean it has to be your trajectory. So trust the, the diagnosis and then uh, create a rainbow in your mind for possibilities within, you know, a realistic range. The second kind of hope is utopian hope. And that means collective oriented hope that involves collaboration and leads to a better future for humanity or for the earth. But this kind of hope, I want to caution, tends to be overly critical of the present. And it's always affirming that there's a, there's a better alternative. So examples of this include 
political and spiritual and other ideological movements. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong in that, but it can get people sometimes locked into magical thinking or, or a type of thinking that is totally dependent on the alternate reality. And what you find sometimes in people who have this kind of utopian hope that they don't have much realistic hope and they're vulnerable to mental illness. So this isn't meant to criticize anybody's uh, way of life or belief system. I only offer this up as a caution or as a reminder to hold space for both. If I have a view, a worldview that's utopian or that promises a utopian in this world or another world or on Trappist One or in the afterlife, I can hold on to that, but I don't want to lose sight of what I can do to make a difference in my life or in the suffering and the people around me. And then the third one is called chosen hope. Chosen hope is when we have a very kind of targeted circumstance where we need hope. Like I said, with, with health or with injury or in terminal illness or end of life care, chosen hope is relevant because ultimately none of us are going to get out of this world alive. We have that uh, common destiny that at least our body has to stay here and we can't stay with it. But when we get to those places, even within that range, okay, I know I have limited time left, but within that parameter, where's the magic? There's a book that I mentioned, if you are a Patreon of the podcast, called The, the Stranger. And it's a bizarre tale about a man who ends up sentenced to death for a series of almost accidental conflicts that lead to a, a murder. But there's a scene near the end of this where he only has maybe hours left, I think, something like that. And he's really tuned into some sunlight that's streaking through the cell. And it's an example of how if we start to practice this now, it will prepare us for maximizing, optimizing the magic at the edges of life. I said in my TED talk that there's so much missed beauty at the edges of life. We see it sometimes when you um, catch like the magic of a, of a barn that's about to fall over and photographers and artists see it, that in those final moments, there's, there's something to behold. And the same is true for human life. We just forget it at the end of life. We see it with the baby, but we don't always appreciate it in the end of life or in the wisdom, all that wisdom and uh, stored knowledge in the eyes, behind the eyes of the elderly and the senior citizens. This kind of hope is essential for mitigating negative emotions and the paralysis that could come uh, when you're in despair. And life is a roller coaster, it's up and down and around. One of the origins etymologically of the word hope is hopin and hopia and hoop from Dutch and Old English. 
that's meaningful to me because life isn't and healing isn't linear it's not just this neat step-by-step -step process it's spiral and circular and it's probably more like a like a roller coaster at great america it's upside down and around but this circular aspect of life like the rainbow this arc whatever you go through whatever pain you go through whatever suffering it's not an isolated experience it's not for nothing it's not meaningless it connects to something that we can't see right now on the ride it will mean something else in the future that old relationship that was the worst possible breakup in the past is clearer now right like 20 years later or the health uh scare that we went through that was awful then is empowering now but anyways the hoop of life not only connects us to different moments in time and different versions of ourselves but there's a, a circle there's a hoop of all life there's an interdependence that connects us all my suffering isn't just my suffering and someone else's suffering isn't just their suffering and when we start to see this web and we honor this web of life this interdependence interconnectedness then every experience is meaningful and the last kind of hope is transcendent hope transcendent hope is a patient and generalized and universal sense that everything is going to work out or another um cliche everything's going to be all right and this kind of hope is not directed toward a specific outcome it's more of an attitude of just believing in the future and believing in meaning and having a general stance that moment to moment day to day life to life human to human there's every possibility of something good happening so i i will finish up this part of the gathering with just a few other obstacles false hope this is when we're just not being realistic but also false hope is when a person has high hope that cannot really be maintained i think a high super high hope like a crash diet you're going to lose weight on that on that extreme diet for 2 weeks but you're not going to be able to sustain that diet and the stomach will get smaller and when you go back or when you regress to the mean you're probably going to gain more weight than you lost and that's what unrealistic or false hope is like now i've met dogmatic people throughout my life many people that enjoyed a kind of confidence with the strong beliefs that they had it can be beautiful to have these beliefs but what we often find at the end of life is people are still very scared and so what i think this means that even if we have our beliefs even if we feel comforted at night it's still probably important to to think about the big picture how do i want to prepare for uncertainty how do i want to prepare for those last days what can i start doing now that will get me free from the habits that i'm that i'm developing now to survive in this world saving earning earning saving saving and all that um so how can i live meaningfully now how can i end every day and transition to the uncertainty of going to sleep in a way that reflects 
what I want to be like, the stoic, spiritual re or religious person that I aspire to be at the end. And, and, I, and I don't mean by stoic, I don't mean suppressing or repressing our real fears. I mean stoic in the sense that I've been practicing this my whole life, so I'm ready. And then a, a couple other things would be when our expectations are based on illusions. Well, then, of course, we can have hope. But when the illusions are shattered, a person can really give up. So it's good to check our ideas, you know, to test our ideas, to be curious, to be open-minded, to be seeking. I've said this before, and I've offered this up many times to people, that if we have beliefs, let them inspire our seeking. If I really believe there's possible, possibly life out on Trappist-1, and I'm an astronomer, well then let me look for the biosignatures of life. One other kind of maybe scary or concerning thought about getting to Trappist-1 is that system is 7.6 billion years old, whereas Earth is 4.6 billion. So if all you need are these ingredients for life, and you get life, if it's not special, because I think it could be special, but if it's not, then that means then it ought to be elsewhere. And if it is there because they have the right ingredients, well, they're three billion years ahead of us. So who knows what that civilization is going to be like? Hopefully they're friendly. I personally think that if you can, if civilization can survive that long, you have to be peaceful because look at where we're already at with the prospect of existential threats and annihilation of our species just a hundred years into uh, radio you know just 20 years into internet and being able to send signals out of space we already have all kinds of crises what would it be like three billion years into the information age or 10 20 years in we're talking over on trappist one they might be three billion years in so if they have survived the great filter, I think they'll be peaceful. Alternate realities, though, could actually be a sign that per a person has low hope to begin with. If I can't find any hope in this world and I go to an alternative world or I create an imaginary world in my mind, then I don't have to do the work of creating pathways in this difficult environment. And it is difficult. You know, like M. Scott Peck said, life is hard. That's it. It's that's a reality. No matter what you see on Instagram or on Facebook, the truth is life is hard and everyone you see has lost someone or is going to lose someone that matters and someone that they matter to is going to lose them. You can have lots of money, uh, but, but people still have the problems of loss and health and death and all that. And alternative realities can, you know, make us forget about the work that's possible here and now. And then there's absurd goals. People have goals that are too high and they set themselves up for failure. But in most cases, they're too low in all the other areas. Too high in one area, too low in every, everywhere else. However, high hopers or healthy high hopers, they just see their goals as challenges. The author Carlos Castaneda in his Don Juan series said something like, a warrior sees everything as a challenge. 
Whereas the, the person who's not of the warrior mindset or spirit sees everything as a blessing or a curse. And then finally, poor strategies. With high hope, a person persists and is flexible and open to several avenues to get to a better future, to a desired outcome. So if you're too rigid, if you think that the better version of yourself or the world is only through this pathway, well, then we could be setting ourselves up for, for disappointment. The last thing I wanted to share is something I read about African uh, mythology and, and the way some people in parts of Africa conceptualized hope. There were certain astronomers and seers that connected people and shamans that connected people to, to their deceased ancestors through the stars. And they had something called a lucky star, which was a combination of the arrangement of constellations and the right patterns in the sky and mapping that with the descendant or the relative seeing a twinkling of a particular star. The, the actual twinkling was the communication. And there were certain seers who could interpret those messages. But there's something not just mythological, there's something beautiful about that concept, which is there is some magic to hope. And there's something realistic about hope. That kind of mystical element in this part of Africa, I think is still useful today because the stars are real and the stars are far away and the stars represent the broadest thinking, seeing the, the taking the biggest view of your problem. And the twinkling is the magic that we don't know the meaning of. So it's just uh, like a nice way to remember that you need to bring magic into your life and you need to ground it in what's realistic and what's practical with your work, with your family, with your relationships. And when you bring those two together, you get uh, realistic hope and you get real change. I've changed. I've changed the way I thought about this. It's really important throughout your life to give hope or to instill hope in others, to share hope. And the way you can do that is by just simply disrupting the expectations. You have no idea the ripple effect of doing something for someone else, whether it's somebody you know or, or a random person, that shows that person that what you thought about how today was gonna go is not how it did go. Because you helped them or you smiled or you went out of your way. This is why it's so important to, to give and to serve because we never know what that did for somebody else. Sometimes you can't do that, but I'm just saying it, it's meaningful and it's important because we don't know how we mitigated one of those moments. And suicidality is on the rise, especially in young people. We have a real crisis on our hands where younger people aren't seeing reasons to be hopeful. I don't know, it's a combination of um, isolation, lack of depth of connection with the technologies. It's not to say that 
we can't get around it. I think that we're learning what's useful about the technologies, the social technologies, and what's harmful. And when we have a, a better roadmap for that, I think we can educate communities about it. It's like they told us cigarettes were good for our health throughout the 20th century. And there were ads in magazines with doctors saying, you know, this one, I choose this one, it protects my throat. And we knew at that time, scientifically, that it caused cancer, but it wasn't until the 80s that you could actually say it caused cancer. So maybe it's going to be like that. But, but the other thing that I would say is the, the big story here, I think, is trauma. And trauma takes all different kinds of shapes. You know, in the past, the general population tended to think that trauma was related to violence and war only. But we know now that you could be adjacent to violence. Um, you could have any kind of event or set of events that leads to learned helplessness or learned hopelessness. If you're in a set of circumstances where no matter what you do, it can't make a difference with your suffering, that can lead to that kind of despair. So it's, it's up to all of us as a community and, and by recognizing interdependence that we want to work to dismantle roadblocks to opportunity, barriers to fortuity, anything that is systemic in the in the structure the social structure that precludes some people from being able to see pathways seeing possibilities but it is something that can be shared your hope and your choices can be can become rainbows in the mind of another and i think when we see it that way we'll be more inclined to get out of our own heads at times we're we're so mired in our project of going from where we are in the present to the imagined future. We don't even realize it, but we're constantly doing things based on hope. We get a checkup, we get a shot, we, do, we go to the gym, not for the time at the gym, for some better future or for protecting us for, from some trouble in the future. So we're constantly doing things out of hopefulness that we don't even realize. And we can take some time out of our day to give that to somebody else. And it might make, it might make a huge difference. It might be the difference between them falling into that hole or not. Because it's hard to survive also. You know, like just because we have homes and we have jobs doesn't mean that if you stopped, have, you know, working and earning that you'd feel safe in that space for very long, for a lot of people, I mean, most people. So that's a pretty stressful circumstance. Sometimes I'm just driving down the street and I look around and I'm like, this used to just be the earth with all possibilities for food, for connection, for joy. And now it's not. And uh, I mean, could you imagine one day a few people own the whole earth because when I look at the earth, it's like you, people think they own it and they do own it, right? right? It, as a construct. But let's say a few people own the whole earth. You know, many billionaires are buying millions and millions of acres of land. But let's say one day a few people own the whole earth and it's totally legal that they own the whole earth. And the, the prices to rent the earth are way too high for anybody. What are we going to do? 
have to go to Trappist One. <laughs>